Good morning again. And I want to thank those of you who've joined us in worship here in the sanctuary, as well as those of you who are watching us online. We are back looking at the Sermon on the Mount, but as we're turning to this next passage, we're talking about treasures and what people value. And as I was thinking about this year, I realized in 2020, we learned a lot about what people value. With lockdowns, confusion, and things that went on earlier in the year, we saw in our grocery stores or other shops that certain items tend to disappear whenever people get nervous. And living in Pennsylvania, I knew about if, you know, there's going to be a flurry, then all the milk and bread is gone. I knew about that. But uh, apparently, when things go really bad in our lives, we all want toilet paper because that was gone for a while. And so maybe some of you were those who took all the toilet paper, but some of the rest of us had to ration for a couple weeks. And it it was a rough period of time there for a little. When something happens and we see empty shelves in stores, there's nothing wrong with preparing for something. But it made me think about what exactly are we really valuing? What are we depending on that those are the things we go to? So again, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a message that Jesus is preaching, that he is sharing. And he's talking about exceeding righteousness. He's talking about if someone knows God and has a relationship with him, what is their life going to be like? And he says it will be exceedingly righteous, exceedingly good. They'll live in a way that's different from those around them. Earlier, we were in the beginning of chapter 6, and we were talking about how we should grow. If we are committed to knowing God, how do we grow to be more like Him? But now Jesus is going to switch to talk about how should we live if we are one of God's children, if we are going to live a life of exceeding righteousness. Last week, Dan spoke about the model prayer, or we sometimes know it as the Lord's Prayer from earlier in Matthew 6. This week, we're going to talk about some things that underlie that or are behind it, things that were assumed if we're going to pray that prayer. We're going to really think about, do we want God's kingdom to come? Do we want his will to be done? And if we do, then we need to think about where our treasure is. What do we value? What do we hold dear? Because what you hold dear, what you treasure, what is the extremely most important thing in your life, that's going to define how you live. So this week we're going to go on a treasure hunt and we're going to find out where exactly our treasure is. We're going to search our hearts as we read these words from our Lord and Savior. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bible, open your app, or look on the screen for Matthew six nineteen through 24. And once you're there, if you're here in the sanctuary, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And then follow along as I read our passage for today. This is Matthew chapter 6, again, starting in verse 19. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus is continuing to speak, and he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, 
your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Thank you, God, for your word, which shows us how we live for you and how we know you. I pray, God, that you will work in our hearts and expose to us what is our treasure, what do we value, what are we preparing for. Help us to see where our treasure is, what we focus on. Help us to choose the right master, the right boss, the right one we're going to follow. God, if we know you, our prayer is that we would decrease, that you would increase, and we would know you more and more. And if someone doesn't know you, God, I pray that they will see how valuable you are, how worthy of being treasured you are, because of what you do for us, because of who you are, and because of the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus talking about how we're going to live. He's talking about our treasures, the things that we value. And the first thing he tells us to do is to place our treasure in heaven, to place our treasure, what we value in heaven. We just read verses 19 and 20, and, and we said them before the offering, so we won't read them again, but we'll talk about them. He's saying there's really only two options in life. It's living for this earth, the temporary things, the things we see around us, or we can live for a heavenly future. In his words, he says, do not lay up or do not store up treasure on earth. He's talking about the world, the physical reality we see, and being satisfied with just what we see around us, total satisfaction in this life. He says, don't do that. You need constant vigilance not to do that. All you have to do is turn the TV or, or open any website or drive down the street and you'll see ads, advertisements wanting you to focus on this life, telling you this life, what's happening right now is most important. But the truth is, as Jesus says, the treasures, the value of this world is not going to last. It's temporary. It's passing. It's here today, gone tomorrow. In his words, it's where moth and rust or worm and vermin destroy. It's where thieves break in and steal, take away what we love. Or we just grow tired of the things of this world. The true hallmark of life here is just how temporary everything is. One pastor I was reading, preaching a sermon on this, gave a kind of a dark image, but a true one. He said, as soon as you pick a flower, it begins to die. Things are just temporary. The beauty, what we see here, does not last. And when he talks about thieves stealing, yes, we can think of someone actually taking something, but there are many ways to lose the things that we value. There could be an emergency that means we can't have something we want. We could have an illness that takes away our health, our ability to enjoy life as we would like. We could have a loss. We could lose something that's precious to us. We could be separated from something or someone. And of course, death separates us from those we love. 
In this text, though, Jesus seems particularly focused on money and possessions, and money in particular is very difficult to hold on to. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he seems to be thinking about these words. He talks about this in James 5, 1 through 3. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. That's kind of the same language we have. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire. And the problem, James says, is you have laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure for here on earth, and you're not thinking about what comes next. And it's a temptation that all of us can fall into, not just multimillionaires. We can spend our life laying up, building up things that will not last and things that really will not satisfy. It's not just something Jesus said or James said. It's something we read in the Old Testament, too. We can look in the book of Proverbs. It says this, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist, to stop. Because when your eyes light on wealth, when you see it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. We don't have to be very large students of history to know about the damage a stock market change or a crash can have. And suddenly money disappears. That's a powerful illustration. 2020 shows that. I'm not someone who's into economics or markets at all, but I'm sure this year is confusing very many people with things going up and down, money seeming to disappear overnight. And this is the problem if we're living to amass and build wealth. Because we don't know how long it's going to last, but I can guarantee you this, it will not last after you die. It will not be yours then. And so that means now you can be the richest person in the world, but you could still be far from God. The truth is, as Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is no person on earth who is fully satisfied. And though, in a sense, some may appear to have everything that they desire, still they want something else. Happiness cannot be purchased. That's a lie we can tell ourselves. If I just had this thing, if I was able to buy this, if I just had this, then I'd be good. But the truth is, if you had that thing you want now, we're able to get it, you just want something else afterwards. And so Jesus says, instead, we should lay up or store up treasure in heaven. That's what he says in verse 20. We should live for the life to come. As he says, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. We should live for imperishable rewards, things that cannot be lost. We should live for the reward of joy and satisfaction in God's presence. We should live for the reward of someday being with God, experiencing true, eternal perfection. Those things cannot decay, and they cannot be taken from us. But Jesus is presenting this as a choice. We have a choice every day, whether we're going to build a kingdom, a life here, or we're going to build, lay up treasure for a heavenly reward. He wants us to diligently, constantly pursue that heavenly reward. Now, when he says that, I don't mean that we have to do things to earn a place in heaven, or the things we do make heaven better for us. I'm not saying we're earning 
our right to be in heaven, our right to be with God. The only way we come to eternity with God is by having faith in Jesus Christ. The only way we're able to be in the presence of God is by turning away from sin and believing in what Christ has done for us. We're not earning our way there. But believers in Jesus Christ, if we know him, if we've turned away from sin, then we should live for the rewards that come in heaven and not for earthly rewards. The Apostle Paul writes to people who are rich in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, those who are rich now, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Because if they do this, they're storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What we have now isn't life, but we are living for the life to come. If you've been blessed with riches, blessed with more than you need, then use it to bless others. In the words of Pastor Charles Spurgeon, he says, what is given to the poor and to the Lord's cause is deposited in the bank of eternity. To heaven we are going. Let us send our treasures before us. Think about it like a retirement account. If you have a job, you probably have something where you lay aside some money for the day, hopefully, that you retire, or at least you know of that. He's speaking to the same kind of thing. When we give to those who are in need, when we give to God's cause, we are putting money into that bank, working for that true retirement. That's where we're going. So let's send our treasures, lay up things there. But this isn't just about money. This is every day we should live this way. In every action, having an eye to eternity, what are we going to do today that's actually going to last? We are to devote ourselves to God alone, to gaining eternal treasure, because all other pursuits will fail. I know one passage I seem to reference often is Colossians 3, 1 and 2, because I think it's a powerful image of what our life should be like. It says, if you then have been raised with Christ, if we have new life with him, if we've turned from sin, he's given us new life, then we are to seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's wrong to save money. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a savings account. I'm not saying that it's only things we do in a church building or only ministry things we do are the only things that matter in life. I'm not saying that. There is dignity and value in in work, in whatever our work or occupation is. There's dignity and value in taking care of family, supporting loved ones. There is joy to be found in creative expression that God has given us the ability to do. There's beauty to celebrate and enjoy. There are things we can enjoy here in this world. But what Jesus is saying does mean that we should think about everything we say, think, and do from an eternal perspective. We should think, how is the decision I'm making right now lasting to eternity? We should look to our Lord and seek to honor him. Jesus is going to now dig deeper because what he is really saying is that we need to check our hearts. We need to check our hearts. 
We need to think about how we're living and why we are living that way. In the next couple of verses, he's going to explore two kind of penetrating truths. He's really asking two searching questions. He doesn't ask them, but the words he uses do that should lead us to ask these questions. And the first question we should ask is, what is your treasure? What is my treasure? What am I really valuing? Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When he says heart, he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood in our chest. He's talking about the center of our being, who we are on the inside, our feelings, our affections, our senses. And again, in this passage, he seems really focused on the role of money and possessions. Are we thinking about that first and foremost, or is God himself in our heart? In Luke 12, he seems to be sharing some kind of similar words. He tells his disciples to sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says working for something that will last forever. There's a very convicting example about this a couple chapters later in Luke. Jesus is having conversation with a rich young ruler who asks him, how can I experience eternal life? How can I know God? Jesus tells him to obey the commandments, and he says, I claims that I have done those. And so then Jesus adds a little bit more in Luke 18. He says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. And for this particular man, he says, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The problem wasn't that this man was rich wasn't God was expecting that every person to give away everything they have, but Jesus pointed out this man, his treasure was his money. He trusted in his riches rather than God. And it's a challenge to us. Do we trust in what we have more than we trust in God? If there's something, anything that gets in the way of us and God, it's really causing us to commit a kind of spiritual adultery against him. Especially if if we claim to be his child, we're supposed to be in a relationship that Scripture compares to marriage with him. But if we let something else get in there, then we're cheating on that relationship. Our heart goes after what we find valuable. Our actions, what we do, shows others what we think has value and worth. So the question Jesus is asking, or we should ask ourselves, is what is my treasure? We all have things that we value. We all have things that we believe are absolutely essential. It may be different from one person to another, but there are things that we value as essential. And the treasure he talks about here can be money, but it can also be so much more. As I was thinking about treasure being more than money, I was reminded of a movie I really enjoy, uh, Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the first one, The Curse of the Black Pearl. The other ones, I'm, I'm not really a fan of, but that first one I really enjoy particularly. 
And in one part in the story, the main thing is there's a guy named Will Turner and his, the woman he loves has been kidnapped. So he breaks a pirate out of jail named Jack Sparrow to help him rescue this woman. He breaks him out of jail. They steal a boat and they go off to save her. And as they're going, the pirate, Jack, he points out that this guy, Will, is kind of acting like a pirate. He broke somebody out of jail. He stole a boat. And then he says, and you're completely obsessed with treasure. And Will says, that's not true. I'm not obsessed with treasure. And Jack says, well, not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. Now, that character Jack Sparrow is wrong about a lot of things in those movies. But (laughs) in, in this area, he's absolutely right here. Treasure, not all treasure, is silver and gold. So in the same way that kids can play going on a treasure hunt, X marks the spot, we should do that with our own heart and go on a treasure hunt in our own lives to find out what we actually value and hold dear. In this passage, Jesus is particularly focusing on money and possessions, but for other people, maybe we value our reputation. We value our standing, how people see us. Maybe we value our status, whether it's by money or some other way in life. Maybe we value our looks, how we appear, and that's what's most important to us. Maybe we value our intelligence, the things we know, or that we know some things that other people don't. Maybe we value the education that we've had, the degrees we've attained. Maybe what we value most is our family or our our children. And not that we shouldn't value them, but that is what's most important to us, and we push everything else aside. Maybe it's a promotion or success at our job or in school. That's what's most important to us. Maybe there's some passion project that you have that defines your life. I'm going to do this thing, get this thing done. That is what is most important to me. Maybe what you value or treasure is a particular relationship with someone. Or maybe it's the dream, the hope of someday having a relationship. Maybe that is what you value. It seems nowadays many people value political success of this party or or that party. If that happens, that's what's most important to me. And if we take the time to listen to other people, you will find out what they value and treasure. It's what people talk about. When people express their desires, what they want in life, it reveals their heart and what their treasure is. And so sometimes it's easier to see it with somebody else. Oh, that person always talks about their car, so their car must be what they treasure. This person is always just talking about their kids. They must really treasure value their kids. We can play this game with others, figuring out what they value, whether that's right or wrong. I think what's most important is to turn that focus on ourselves and to ask ourselves, what is it that brings me the most joy, the most satisfaction? What is it in my life that makes me the happiest? And maybe the reverse, what is it in my life that makes me the angriest or the most upset? Because that will show me what I treasure and value. And if any of those answers arrive at some point other than God, Jesus is saying, for a Christian, it should be different. Their life should not be defined by those type of desires, those centered here on earth. God's people truly are pilgrims. This world is not our home. We are not going to stay in this world as it exists. Everything we have is really a lease. We don't own it. And something that's temporary should not be the center of our lives. Think about it if you were going on a trip or you flew somewhere. Maybe you've had this opportunity. You fly somewhere, but you need a car, so you get a rental car from somewhere. 
well, you're, you're not going to misuse that car. You know you're going to have to re- return it, but you're also not going to treat it fully as your own because you know in just a few days when you fly back, you're going to have to turn this car in. Well, that's the same thing, everything here we have on life. We need to hold it loosely because we're not going to have it forever. Even some things that feel really important can sometimes sink in to that. And it can be hard when it's something dear to us. I know I, I really enjoy uh, the blessings of marriage. I know some of you do as well. But even that is a relationship that in the way it is, it's not going to last forever. And if I make it most important in my life, it will distract me from other things that God wants me to achieve and to focus on. And that's where Jesus goes next. He's challenging us with where is your focus? Where is your focus? This is what verses 22 and 23 are kind of about. He says, the eye, what we see is a lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The words are kind of confusing, but he's directing us to think about what is our mind focused on? Because our eye is like a lamp. Our eye lets light in, or it should. When our eye is healthy, when it's clear, when it's good, it lets light into our lives. In the context of money and possessions, he's saying when someone is is generous and giving, has a proper understanding of their wealth, it lets light in. The eye is a lamp that shows the quality of our inner life and our soul. If something's wrong, if our eyes can't let light in, then we won't see correctly. We won't be able to walk the right way. We will stumble as we go. This healthy eye is a loyal devotion to God, a morally healthy life, but a bad and evil or perhaps even a stingy eye leads to moral corruption. If we focus on what's wrong, on what obscures our focus, Jesus says, well, then how great, how deep our darkness will be. Our perspective on life, our priorities, our values will be warped and misdirected. Our decision-making, our thinking will become distorted. And we can see this in many ways. We can see something that's true, but then we can become distorted in something else. We can see it in our culture and in ourselves. We can look around and see those who condemn murder, but then approve of someone killing an unborn child. We could maybe, though, perhaps a bit closer to home, we could think, yes, a robber, someone who steals, should be punished. But then we're okay if we cheat on our taxes. Or we might say, well, every person matters and is value to God, but then we refuse to help someone when they're in need or to listen to someone's cry for justice. If we ignore God's light, our perspective becomes distorted. We don't understand, and life in God's word doesn't make sense to us. We are then living for earthly treasures, stumbling in the dark. One paraphrase of the Bible that's well known is called the message. It's not a translation. It's someone taking the words that are there and trying to reword them in the way that makes sense to many people. And so the message, the very end of verse 23, I think it's it's well written, has a good imagery here. It says, if you pull the blinds on your windows what a dark life you will have. If our blinds are closed, we will not see as well in our house. And that's what Jesus is going for. If your eye isn't good, if you're not letting life into your life, you will not see as well as you should. That's why we should pursue and focus on what is good rather than 
what is evil. Commit to honor God. Jesus presents this very clearly in the Gospel of John. In John 3, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, because then what that person does will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works, what he does, has been carried out in God. If we truly know God, if we're living in his light and truth, it will be reflected in how we live. And we can explore this in many different areas, but I just want to talk about two. One is the area Jesus seems to be focusing on, both before this and after this. He says it explicitly. He's talking about how we view money. And these phrases about light work in how we think about money. There's a couple Proverbs in the Old Testament that talk about this. One is Proverbs 22.9. It says, Whoever has a bountiful or a good eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. You see this kind of language that Jesus talks about our eye. He's tying it to how we view our finances and our money. If we're focused on God, then our vision is not blurred by trying to focus on God and money. But whoever has a good eye focused on God will be blessed and shares what he has. But the opposite of that shows up a couple chapters later. A stingy man, or it could be translated a man with an evil eye or a bad eye, hastens chases after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. This is someone who's greedy or ungenerous, and that route, the author says, leads to eternal poverty. Perhaps put a bit more simply, uh, one pastor, Presbyterian minister, used to preach in Philadelphia, James Boyce, said, if you are absorbed with money, you will miss everything in life that really matters you are absorbed in money, you will miss everything in life that really matters. Money can dominate your life. It can dominate any of our lives, even if you don't have a lot of it. It's easy to look and see somebody who's rich and has multiple houses, multiple cars, and say, oh, well, money must control their life. But even if you barely have any, it can still be at the center of our being. It can be particularly insidious if we make our decisions based on our own financial security. And what I mean by that is we don't choose between what is right and wrong. We make our decisions based on what doesn't rock the boat, keeps my income coming in, allows me to keep my job and maintain my finances and my life. And we make our decision based on that rather than what God's word says. Let me assure you, honesty, integrity, and faithfulness are worth much more than financial security. I'm not saying we should be reckless, but having a budget or a set way of life is not an excuse to not do what is right. Being, having a budget is not an excuse to not help someone in need. It's not an excuse to not tell the truth if it could hurt us. Because our money, our possessions, really belong to God. And if our eye is right, that's the way we'll think about it. But as I was also thinking about where our treasure is and what we're focusing on throughout this year, I know I've observed the impact it can have in how we view political situation of the world around us. And I think our eye is bad when it comes to politics, when we view everything in the world that happens through a political lens. Everything that happens is related to politics. We're unable to see nuance and truth 
becomes distorted. Think about the election that happened last week. It's okay if you feel happy or sad about the results. That, that's, that's fine. But if the results of last week made you the saddest you've been that week, if that was the worst thing that happened in your week, or if that made you the angriest in your week, then I think your treasure may be in the wrong place. And on the other hand, if what happened last week was what made you the happiest, it was the happiest news you got all week, I think as well your treasure may be in the wrong place. You should check where your treasure is. As I was preparing for this message, I normally read a couple sermons from others who've spoken on this text, and I was, I was having these thoughts, is this related to how people view politics? And I was shocked. I read a sermon from over 60 years ago from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I quote him sometimes, and he directly tied this to politics. In his message on these verses, he said this, when at the time of an election, we are called to make a choice of candidates. Do we find ourselves believing that one political view is altogether right and the other altogether wrong? If we do, I suggest we are somehow or another laying up treasures for ourselves on earth. I was shocked to read that. This is over 60 years ago. So the things we see around us aren't new. They've happened. But his point is true. If we view everything through political lens, if that is our heart and treasure, that's building up a treasure, a kingdom on earth. Lloyd-Jones says we do that because we're either protecting something we have in this earth or we're anxious to get something in this earth that we think our political party will be able to do. And so he challenges us to examine ourselves, to really think about what is behind my political view. In his words, he says, to what extent are our feelings engaged in this matter? How much bitterness is there? How much violence? How much anger and scorn and passion? And if the answer is a lot, that means we have a problem. If politics is the primary focus or concern of our life, then it's not really politics that we have. We're really worshiping another religion. And this can be something true for someone who's politically conservative or liberal. If their focus on life is, how does this fit my political system? And friends, politics is a really terrible God. It's terrible. There's nothing stable in there. There's nothing true in there. Every election is either affirming your faith and building you up. Yes, people believe that my God is the true God. Or it's tearing you down and destroying you. Oh, everything is lost. Not enough people are bowing before my idol. Every event that happens is either praising your team, your God, or it's an attack on your faith. Here's the reality. In politics, it was true in Lloyd-Jones' day, true now, the pendulum of who's in charge swings back and forth. What goes around comes around. One group's in charge, then the other group is in charge. And the truth is, your political party will never bring heaven on earth. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make things better on earth or more in line with God's will. But it does mean we should fight against the tendency in our heart to make politics our religion. Let me tell you about a better religion, a better faith. There's a faith in the one true, holy, awesome, and loving God. This Lord has given us his loving word that never changes, that doesn't get voted in and out in office, but that's always true. This God, this religion never fails. Friends, God doesn't need a president. 
He doesn't need a Congress. He doesn't need a Supreme Court to enact his will. He doesn't even need you and me. He is greater than that. We may say in all these things we're living for God, but if something, whether it's money or politics, is what we base our life, our emotions, our joy on, that's a thing of earth. And that is hypocrisy. So Jesus' conclusion is we can really only have one master or one boss. And the choice is ours as to who that is. Listen again to verse 24. You can read it on the screen. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. No one can serve two masters, two bosses, two lords, two people in charge. You're going to have to love one and hate the other, be, have devoted loyalty to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And if you have an uh, older translation, it uses the great word mammon, which just means riches there. This is really a, a simple logic. Think about it in terms of a business. If there was a business and you're an employee there and you're told there's two bosses you have to report to, you have to talk to both of these people who are at opposite ends of the building every time you need to do something, that's not a very effective business. You're not going to know what to do as an employee. Everything will be slowed down. But in our life, when we have two things, two desires we're reporting to, that's fatal. We cannot have two governing passions. Now, maybe you hear this talk of master boss, someone who's in control, and you think, well, that's not true about me. I'm the boss of my own life. I make decisions for myself. But this is what we've been talking about. You really don't. None of us is really our own boss. We all have something in our heart, some desire, some goal, and that controls you. Not your, yourself. Whatever your heart values and treasures, that is what will control you. Your treasure, your heart, your focus determines what you do. It determines who you serve, who you act for. In this case, he talks about the context of his day or slavery or servants, but in his day, he was talking about they had to serve their master, give exclusive service. They had loyalty that cannot be divided. This works out in money or any area we touch. One scholar, Danny Aiken, put it this way, the more we love money, the less we will love God. As Jesus talks about, you cannot serve God and money. The more you value one, the less you value the other. Money is supposed to be a tool. A tool. It's supposed to be a resource that we use. It's not supposed to be our boss. It's not supposed to control us. We read earlier from 1 Timothy 6 about how those who are rich are to live. But before that, this is what Paul says. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and darkness. It seems a little thing to be, well, I just want a a bit more money there. But Paul's warning us, it can plunge us into all kinds of ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It says it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You can be the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world, and you can still be enslaved to a love of money. 
The issue is not how much you have. It's what controls your actions. It's what makes your decisions, what guides you as you live in life. Are you living for things of this earth or are you living for heaven? Jesus says a servant of God, someone who belongs to God, must choose to honor his or her master, pursue the master, the Lord's interest. Divided allegiance is not possible in the kingdom of God. We read from James earlier, and James seems to really know the Sermon on the Mount well. He says in James 4.4, critiques his audience, says, you adulterous people, do you not know that having friendship with the world, the things of this earth, that makes you, that is enmity with God, it makes you an enemy of him. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The earthly treasure we have here, it has value here. I'm not denying that. It has a role here. It's it's important. There's, There's things we need to live, of course. But the things that are valuable here will be worthless in heaven. And that should really make us stop and think. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says, you can live for this world or you can live for the next. But to live equally for both is impossible. You can't balance on the middle of the seesaw. You have to choose what you are living for. Again, though, there's joy in this life. There's much to be celebrated about life here. I'm not saying we pull away, become monks, and only spend time indoors. We can enjoy creation. We can enjoy the life that God has given us and praise Him for it. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that the best life, if we know God, is still to come. This is not the best that life will be. There is something greater ahead of us. And when we hear all this, we think this may be difficult. How in the world are we able to live this way? Well, we're able to live this way if we have a new master, a new Lord, because for Christians, we belong to God. In the book of Romans, Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. He says, to a standard of teaching to which you were committed. And look at the last phrase, having been set free from sin, you have now become slaves of righteousness. Do you remember what the Sermon on the Mount is about? Jesus is telling us how can we have a life of exceeding righteousness and goodness. He calls us to live a certain way, but it has to start with us belonging to God, knowing Him, having a relationship with Him, having His righteousness in us. We won't live that way if we don't have that first. That decision has to be made first. I don't want you to hear this and think, oh, so if I just give away a certain amount or if I I own less things, that will make me right with God. No, no, it won't. You need to make a decision about who your Lord, who your master, who your boss is. Is it some desire that you have or is it God? That's a decision that cannot wait until later. You may think it can, but you are not guaranteed that. Remember, this world is passing away. You might think this is a joke. You might think, but pastor, I'm the master of my fate. I'm my own boss. I decide what happens to me. That's not actually true, though. And if you continue down that path, you will discover how truly in chains you are. But that is why we're here, why we gather together, why we listen to God's word, because Christ offers a freedom from that kind of life. 
if we switch our loyalty from the things we desire and want to God, to Christ himself, that gives us the freedom to live for him. That gives us a true joy. That means we don't have to worry about judgment. We are free to enjoy God, to live life with him, to live for him. Our life does not have to be controlled by an earthly desire that we will never, ever achieve. Our life can be controlled by the Lord because he is always with us and he is enough. In talking about money and that God is enough, there's this beautiful passage in Hebrews 13. The author says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he, the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The antidote to being in love with money is to be even more in love with God. The solution to being trapped by political news is to be enraptured with the one true king. The solution to whatever it is that guides and controls your life and keeps you enslaved is greater loyalty to Lord and King Jesus. The only way you know that is by leaving sin, turning away from it, believing and trusting in what Christ has done. He died for that sin and rebellion that we had against God. He died so that we might be restored to the Lord and know Him, have an eternal relationship with Him. And if we know Him, then He will never leave us nor forsake us. Is He with you? And if He's not, will you come to know Him and have a relationship with Him? I pray you'll have a conversation about that and not leave today without knowing who exactly runs your life and having made the choice, yes, I'm okay with this desire I have running my life, or I want God to be the one who is in control. And if you do know him, then will you live for him? Will you put away those things that distract you or pull you away from him and instead be focused on honoring him? He is worth living for because he alone is worthy of our praise.